Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. I'm about to go on vacation and I'm excited to be back on Battle Rhythm because we had a little hiatus period and then uh, you had a guest co-host while I was on bereavement leave. So I'm now back and it feels great to be able to talk to you. And uh, I don't know if you're heading off on vacation, but what's new with you? Are you deep in the preparation for the Summer Institute? Yes, uh, that's been one of the focal points of the summer is that we have a summer institute for the first time. We tried to do it last year, but had to cancel. So we're trying to figure out how to do it online. And uh, we're getting close to having it all together. It's going to be at the end of August. Besides that, it's like you, I'm in the middle of grant writing season, trying to get money for the next project while I'm trying to finish this project. And it does seem like things are culminating. I've gotten a lot of things out the past month. And that just means they'll come back as soon as, as, soon as I turn around again. It sounds like you've been pretty productive lately as well. Before you go on vacation, you want to go with a clear mind. That means getting rid of your to-do list frantically. And I don't know about you, but I always set really unrealistic expectations <laughs> about what I should do before I go on a holiday. So it's been one of those weeks of really early mornings and late nights just to get it done. And it's also the time of year when MA students are writing their theses and those are due early August or mid-August. And then I have two PhD students who just submitted their dissertations oh, no. and we're also defending in August. So, you know, you don't want to keep your students waiting for feedback or for these final approvals. So I've got to make sure all that is done before I go. I've been lucky that my MA students and PhD students have mostly been quiet lately. So I haven't had to deal with much reading. I've got some one thing on my desk right now, but not too much. And you've also been planning all kinds of camping trips. So hopefully you've been able to avoid the bugs in the last round. Hopefully we'll get too badly bit in the next round. Yeah, yeah. No, not avoiding the bugs. That's not, <laughs> not a thing. But yeah, I'm getting more experienced in that realm. I actually saw you recently because we both showed up at the online roundtable run by the Minister of Defense on reporting what is going on on the sexual misconduct file and what they're trying to do. And so they brought together about 60 stakeholders, about 30 people from government. We got briefings from the Judge Adjutant General. We got a briefing from Jenny Karanya, a veteran of our podcast. She was on our second podcast long, long ago, who's now leading the command on professional culture and conduct. We had a variety of other folks speak, and we had some small, well, not so small, 40-person breakout sessions. What was your take on the event? 
I still am not quite clear exactly on who is within the CPCC, so uh, Chief Professional Conduct and Culture that is being headed by Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan. So, of course, she uh, gave us her, her vision and shared some personal experiences, and those are always valuable. But I would love to know, you know, how big is this office? Uh, what's the exact composition? How is coordination shaping up with other organizations within the DND CAF system? Those are, are more nitty gritty questions that are probably not all figured out as this shop is getting set up. But I'm very curious about the specifics of CPCC's composition, structure, and then immediate priorities. What did you think? Well, to stand that theme, I was really curious, and I don't really got a clear idea of what is its authority? What power does it have to get the rest of the military to do what it wants to do? So a lot of the discussion centered around the new command that Karen Yell will be heading and on the sexual misconduct response centers, the SMRCs. And it seemed like every Almost every answer to every question was, well, we're going to give that to the SMRC that accumulate a lot of responsibilities. And that's good news for future leaders of the CAF because they could always say, well, we're handling it because we gave it to the SMRC. But that's not really an answer. That's just uh, an accumulation of files. And while they've gotten more money lately, I don't know if they have all the capacity to do it. I don't know if there's going to be tensions between the different missions that they're going to have. And also the SMRC is independent, but in, you know, what is what does independence mean? I raised that in a blog post because there's, there's a pro side and a con side of being independent. Okay, if you're independent, that means you're not going to get interference from who, right? So the question is who you're independent from. And the question then is also, if you're independent, who you're accountable to. And so is the SMRC then going to report to parliament or they report to the Minister of National Defense? The ombudsman reports to the Minister of National Defense. And we've had a series of ombudsmen report that there's been political interference, that there's been excessive interference in their budgets and their agendas from the Minister of National Defense, from, from his office. And so that raises questions about what does independence mean if you ultimately report to the minister. So I think that's a real challenge. And I didn't get a lot of clarity on that particular thing. It's something I thought about more afterwards than during, but it didn't really come up very well besides hearing the, the word independent thrown around a lot. So I worry about what the Karen Young's authority is going to be, how much power she has to get things done. I worry a lot about a lot of the stuff being put into these different commands and then what? Is it, are those going to be containers that are going to hold all the efforts and there's not going to be stuff done elsewhere? How do you change a culture of toxic masculinity? Is, is that going to be something that uh, Karen Yon is going to lead on? Is that part of her mission set? It wasn't really clear exactly what was going to go on. And for me, what was really frustrating was there's still a sense that they're waiting. They're waiting and waiting to make decisions, that they're waiting for the Arbor Commission or committee or whatever it's going to be called. The good news, it was clear from our conversations that we had Friday that Arbor is at work, that she's re requesting stuff. She's requesting information from the Judge in general. She's requesting information from other actors. So she's at work and that's good news. But I think all this is going to have to wait. And it's all going to wait until after the election. And then we'll have a new defense minister and then maybe they'll have made the decision about who's going to be the chief defense staff, because we still have an acting chief of the defense staff. And once that's all settled, maybe then we can actually see some dates and times and specificities about what's really going to change. Having said that, I had really low expectations going in. We actually had a greater ability to ask questions. I asked a question at the end that the minister answered quite directly. So it was better than I was expecting, but I was still pretty frustrated with the lack of clarity about the next steps. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that some decisions could be made, even if the course of action changes uh, over time with the recommendations from our reporting mechanisms. That strikes me as a particularly urgent issue to address where you don't want to be saying, 
oh, in 12 to 15 months time, we'll have an answer. We'll have a reporting uh, mechanism that works uh, for victims and survivors. And that's where, and, and you're going to say this again, oh, you're asking the SMRC to do too much. But right now, victims and survivors can get advice on what to do if they've suffered an incident when they reach out to the uh, Sexual Misconduct Response Center or the SMRC. But they can't report directly through the SMRC. And they have to navigate a fairly complex system of different reporting lines that can go to the chain of command, that can go to the military police, the Canadian Forces National Investigation Service, or the RCMP. So they have this choice and they, they're getting advice on what best to do through the SMRC. But it just seems to me that if you're going to be in touch and develop a relationship with the SMRC, it would be great to have that option to report directly to them. And I think this is being studied or looked at as an option. But, you know, when I think about what decisions need to be made in a shorter time frame, to me, this is one of them. And then talking about the relationship between CPCC and other initiatives within the DND CAF system, there's the data management issue because when you have so many reporting lines, it becomes a bit complex, not only for CAF members to navigate, that's one issue, but also to centralize that data. And I know that was something on the agenda for CPCC. So that to me also is something that could get done in a relatively short time frame. So at least you get better centralization of the data. And when you have that, that data, you're better equipped also to analyze it and improve your practices. So I'm, I'm like you, uh, I'm very impatient to you know see some action off and I understand they want to get it right. They want to engage in the appropriate consultations and they want to give Abu some time to conduct a review, but I would like to see this. And I think I've, I've said this before uh, in our conversations, but I'd like to see a few items being put as priority agenda items in the next two, three months and, and for us to get clarity on that. Yeah, I think that's really key is priorities. What's most important? What's second? What's third? I think that the challenge is that they've been bitten both ways. When they've made decisions precipitously, they face a lot of heat. So right now, the story of the week or, or one of the stories of the week is that Danny Fortan was in the news because he's suing the government for getting kicked off of his job of, of running the vaccination rollout because he did something potentially relatively minor 30 years ago. On the other hand, uh, General Eyre let the Admiral, Admiral Bain stick around despite the fact that he played golf with John Vance and said some relatively inartful things around that time. And so they're, they're, they're trying to figure out a way. And I do think that it's important not to have a zero discretion, zero tolerance kind of policy. I think that they need to be able to, to adjust ramifications for the various crimes and misdemeanors that have been done, because we can't just get rid of everybody. And most officers went through an RMC at a time when it was very, very toxic, which it may still be. And so people will have lots of things on their in their background that they don't want to have discussed. But at some point, there's going to have to be an open discussion of that as well. I had a conversation with a smart person this past week, and the phrase restorative justice came up, which is we've got to figure out a way to address the elephant in the room, which is that a lot of people have been involved one way or another, either committing offenses, being complicit in the commission offenses, or having offenses directed at them, or some combination of all the above. And there needs to be some truth-telling going on in a way that makes people understand that the institution itself is taking seriously what's happened in the past, and it's going to do better. And it does not mean that everybody is going to be fired for whatever's happened in the past, it, but it does mean that people who've done egregious things should be 
dismissed or pushed aside. One of the topics of this week, we're recording this a little earlier than usual, so it's a week before we drop the podcast, is uh, Major General Daw is returning back to the force after being uh, suspended for a while with pay for his support. He wrote a letter of support for one of his underlings who was in the process of a judicial process for having engaged in sexual assault. And so there are questions about whether Daw should be kept around. And so there, there's lots of hard decisions to be made and they shouldn't be made precipitously, but they, they should be developing a framework for how these decisions are made so that we can understand them and make them all make sense of them as opposed to overreacting in one case and underreacting in another case. They need to be clear about things. I think Ayer's statement when he brought Baines back to be to continue as the chief of the Navy, I think that was a really good statement clarified what he was trying to do, but I don't know if he was speaking really well for the minister or for anybody else in terms of this is how things are going to be going forward. And then he got criticized publicly by Christopher Freeland and some others in the news right after. Including the prime minister. And that speaks to a real problem that we continue to have today, which is what is the role of the Minister of National Defense? And I believe that the role of the Minister of National Defense is to manage the chief of defense staff. And so it's very clear that AIR did consult with the minister. And so the problem that Freeland has, the problem that might have would be with the minister, not with Air, because Air talked to him about it. It's clear he talked to him about it. Mm-hmm. But Freeland may be running for prime minister in a couple of years, and so maybe that's what she's trying to do. But it was not a good performance in uh, Canadian civil relations to have that play out the way it did. So where do we go from here, Stephanie? Well, I think it's a good example to use in your civ mill classes, Steve, at the very least. You know, it's great to be pointing to events as they unfold to illustrate some dynamics that are in the literature and using these examples that are really close to home and underscoring the importance of healthy civ mill relations in the management of defense. That's what I think. The good news is that my grant proposal is directly on this issue of what is the role of ministries of defense and overseeing militaries. So yeah, it's very easy to write the, the, the opening paragraphs of this grant proposal pointing at the challenges within Canada. And do you want to turn now to the realm of great power politics as there's been another standoff around cyber attacks? Sure. China has been blamed for a series of cyber attacks, and we've seen a, the alliance of democracies, the United States, Canada, and European countries all on the same page criticizing China. Obviously, the Chinese are going to say, we didn't do it, but it seems to be a fairly strong consensus that they were responsible. But it's really hard then to do what's, what's next. Do we, you know, one of the challenges we have with the Russians is what do we do? Once they hack us, do we hack them back? Do we amp this up or do we do something proportionate? What would you recommend if you were whispering into the ear of, of the prime minister on how to handle this? Well, it's at least good to see that multilateralism is working again. And I and I do think that this is the U.S. and its allies' comparative advantage in this fight mm-hmm. is the extent to which it's by friends. So it's good that these relationships have been somewhat restored. And I'm not sure if a formal condemnation is enough, though. Yes, it includes Canada, NATO, and the EU. So it's a pretty big group. And I guess I was thinking back to, to the Brussels communique. And last month, I think it was, we were talking about the, the Brussels summit. And it was, you know, in this uh, Brussels communique that NATO's comprehensive cyber defense policy was endorsed at that summit. And there's additional language in the communique reaffirming that NATO reserves the right basically to determine whether or not a cyber attack might qualify for the invocation of Article 5. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, NATO will decide this on a case-by-case basis, as is stated in the communique, but it's a really good and difficult 
question. Condemnation is one thing, but how do you deter a future cyber attack if all you're doing is condemning and issuing stern statements to China when it uh, conducts these attacks? And also, you know, you need to be somewhat consistent. You know, the, there have been more forceful responses against Russian cyber attacks than there have been towards China. So is it just the beginning of the response vis-a-vis -vis China or is the US, NATO, the EU, are all of these actors just a bit more risk averse when it comes to dealing with China on that? Well, the basic reality is that China has a lot more leverage over us than, than the Russians do. Russia's economy is, you know, we're not dependent upon it. They're dependent on us more or less. Uh, with the Chinese, they, they have quite a lot of tools at their disposal to inflict pain upon us. So anything we do, they can respond. And that's just an ongoing reality. And so we would figure out how do we nudge them? How do we cause them some pain? You know, some, how do we have some leverage over them? So that way we demonstrate and raise costs for their behavior without breaking the relationship entirely. That's the real trick. And I, I just, I do have to shrug my shoulders and, and just say, I don't really have a good idea for what is the right mix of, of coercive responses. But there are things that that are, you know, our leadership, the Canadian leadership, the American leadership, European leadership need to need to figure out some measures short of escalating. But the, the problem with the Chinese is they've proven to take modest steps, you know, modest steps are taken against them and escalate them quite a lot. We've seen with them taking Canadians hostage and they're still being held hostage. So it's really hard to nuance this to try to impose some costs upon the Chinese without blowing things up. Take example from Lithuania. <laughs> Taiwan's in the process of opening a de facto embassy there in Vilnius. It's first in Europe. So it was interesting to see this Lithuania-China standoff play out in, in the news. But see, that's a, that's a brave move on the part of a small Baltic state. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there are so many smaller countries that have have done this, that have opened up, you know, given access to the Taiwanese in one way or another. And then the Chinese always pay a price. My favorite story of that is that there was a UN peacekeeping mission preventing conflict in Macedonia in the late 1990s. And then Macedonia decided to recognize Taiwan since Taiwan was recognized Macedonia under the name it preferred. And so the Chinese then spiked renewal of that UN conflict prevention mission, which had been very successful. And then they had a small conflict. Uh, ultimately, the NATO and, and uh, the OSCE got involved, but the Chinese do take these things very, very seriously. The, I'm sorry, the government of China takes these things very seriously. And so we need to figure out ways that put pressure on the Chinese government, but don't harm folks elsewhere. I mean, one of the things we have to always think about these days is when we talk about China, is we have to make sure that we're focusing the government of China and we're not you know, amping up tensions between Asian Americans and Asian Canadians and Asian Europeans and the rest of the populations of those, of those places, because we've seen a lot more violence towards people of Asian descent the past year or two. And us amping up the conflict with China does spill over in these ways, which are predictable and unfortunate. And we need to figure out ways to, to try to avoid doing that. Speaking of UN missions that had many surprises, we interviewed a Canadian colonel who just came back from South Sudan. Can you, can you tell us a little about your interview with Colonel Hanrahan, Stephanie? Absolutely. So Colonel Hanrahan deployed in November of 2019 for a full year to assume the role of Provost Marshal of Task Force South Sudan. So she was advising the task force commander on all aspects of military police in South Sudan. And it was interesting not only 
to hear about the peacekeeping mission, but to hear about her experience through COVID because she got to see the before and also experience the transition of operating under COVID-19 rules. So it was a, a very pleasant exchange. I learned a lot and uh, that's what's coming up next. Fantastic. So uh, we'll have that interview, then we'll have my R&R segment, and you'll be off to your vacation. And uh, the next time we hear from you will be in a couple of, well, for, well, from us, we'll be in a couple of weeks. Enjoy your vacation, staff. Relax, chill out. Don't think at all about the stack of academic stuff that's accruing while you're away. <laughs> I will try not to. And thank you for accommodating my travel plans by recording early. I hope our podcast will be overtaken by events. And you know, <laughs> if, if it does, then I guess I'll just have to call you again from the Citadel in Quebec City to uh, record an update, but I hope that won't be the case. And I can just and meet you in two weeks for our next episode of Battle Rhythm. Fantastic. Colonel Vanessa Hanrahan recently returned from South Sudan as part of Operation Soprano, the Canadian Armed Forces contribution to the UN mission in the Republic of South Sudan, better known as UNMISS. Colonel Hanrahan, thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. And as I just mentioned, you came home from South Sudan very recently at the end of November. So I'll start by asking you one of our favorite questions on this podcast. What was your battle rhythm like during your deployment and what has it been like since you've returned? Um, so during my deployment, I was there from November 19 to November 20. I think the battle rhythm trains drastically as a result of COVID, probably pretty similar to everyone here as well. So in the beginning, um, I was an office worker. So my day started usually around six in the morning. Um, I would do a little bit of a workout, review some emails, attend the office for eight. I'd be in the office from eight to four. It was usually a lot of meetings, a lot of interactions, mostly in person. Because I had military police detachments throughout the country, I did a lot of travel every week. So my days were quite busy. And then at the end of the day, I always ended with a with a good run around our military establishment there in Juba, then I would I'm a boxer. So I would actually get to participate in some boxing and some other outdoor activities. Um, outdoors is a very important part of my life. I came back to Canada to a very different reality in November. First and foremost, the weather for me was mm -hmm. significantly cold <laughs> compared mm -hmm. to Juba, it was 40 degrees when I left on the plane and it was around 10 when I arrived. So it took a bit of an adjustment. And then, of course, we had COVID. So I have spent, for the most part, my entire time since I've been home indoors. Very little engagement with people other than on, the, on Skype, on FaceTime, on Zoom, on Teams. So my life in Canada seems to be a little more restricted than my life in Juba. I'm unable to box, but I've been able to reestablish a good routine here. I work online mostly from 8 to 4, very similar to Juba with the exception of in-person. And then I do my workouts and things, but my workouts are indoors with the exception of walking my two-year-old German Shepherd. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the bulk of my activities outside. Okay. And we might have him as a special guest on this <laughs> show. Who knows? You, you very well may. <laughs> Could I ask you to tell us a little bit about UNMISS and its mandate and also the CAF's contribution to that mission? 
Okay, so UNMISS is the UN mission in the South Sudan. It's one of the largest UN missions with approximately 14,000 military people from over 20 different countries. The mission was established in 2011, and its mandate was for the protection of civilians and, of course, peace operations across the country. For Canada, Canada is a complement of approximately just, I shouldn't say just 10, I think we have a great contribution. We have 10 CAF members in this mission. These members fill both staff positions within both the force and other organizations within the UN mission. So, for example, they have EMS and a few other locations, which are mainly civilian personnel, but are complemented by military. So we have key military persons in positions such as supply organizations, uh, safety organizations. And then we have, of course, our military observer positions. And that's the bulk of the 10 people. And they are actually conducting peace operations, military observer, normal tasks in many of the different areas within South Sudan, and sometimes in very harsh conditions, I would say, without some of the creature comforts that I even saw in the capital of Juba. Okay, can, can you go just a bit, I know this is not what you were doing specifically, but in terms of the military observers, uh, can you just give us a quick idea of uh, what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so I certainly can't speak directly because I wasn't a military observer, but from what I saw, and I've certainly the conversations I have with the military observers, so essentially they're there to work with, of course, the, the forces within South Sudan, so the South Sudanese military, their police forces, and to facilitate the movement of our UN troops across the country so that we can actually go into different, I won't say cities, I'd say villages, different places, and ensure that the protection of civilians is being maintained and that there's, there's actual peace within the different tribes of the different regions. I think the military observer is one of the key positions. Without a military observer, it's very challenging for the forces to be able to actually maneuver on the ground itself and to be able to have the right liaison with the different entities within South Sudanese organizations themselves. Their living conditions, depending on where they were, their living conditions can be quite austere. So the in some areas of, of South Sudan, it's, it's very challenging to get to. So for example, it may say 150 kilometers on the map, but it's a six hour drive uh, to get one way. Um, most times the only way to receive food is via the UN flights that are going in and out. And of course, when COVID hit, the number of UN flights that co could transfer across the country became limited. So the ability to actually have access to food became certainly a challenge for some of our military observers in some positions. But I would say the camaraderie that they build in the small locations is certainly beneficial and twofold worth having to do with some of the provisions. For the Canadian military observers, I hope to think that they actually had a little bit better because I know we could actually receive mail from Canada and that mail was then put on the UN planes and shipped across the various different locations in South Sudan, which it allowed them to get some of the creature comforts you get used to um, when you're at home, but you really miss when you're away. For me, it was something as simple as receiving a package of nibs. And I know the Canadian team in Juba were great because we made sure that if there was a military observers out in kind of the austere locations, we would randomly put together packages and make sure that things were being sent out to them so that they could actually have some of those nice to have things and some food to make sure they were, they were able to keep their health. That's good. Emergency nibs packages. Right. Sometimes it's the little things in life that make the difference when you're, when you're in a different country and you take it for granted back here in Canada, but getting a package in the mail and even receiving letters. Canada was quite fortunate. We received letters at Remembrance Day and at Christmas and mm -hmm. Easter from people across Canada who have no idea who you are. Mm -hmm. And it became a highlight for everyone to get letters, not just from your family, but to get letters from anyone that just gave you a little piece of home to know that something was happening back there. Just reminded you of what's waiting for you when your mission is done. Yeah. And you were there for a full year. 
Yes. Canada has been a champion of the ELSI initiative, and I want you to comment on that a little bit as it pertains to your operational experience. But just for our listeners, the ELSI initiative is a UN-led initiative to increase the role of women in peace operations, and and Canada was very much behind uh, the standing up of this initiative. Obviously, women and men deployed on operations have a set number of military tasks to perform, but are there unique contributions that women can make? in an operational setting. So I don't know if I would call them unique contributions. I just think that everybody comes with a different mindset. So I always look at it as diversity. And I think having women included in uh, deployments is certainly an ability to have more diversity. And our ability to interpret the situation and develop different courses of action based on previous experiences and understandings is really what our diversity gives us. It's a strength. Men and women are all different and we see things differently and we certainly interpret situations differently. Having a team that can provide different perspectives and when empowered to do so, we can certainly have what I consider to be a well-developed, well-thought-through action plan that allows us to incorporate all aspects of the ground and the situation at hand. So it really comes to diversity. In Juba, I just like to, I think engagement was something that really came to mind. Having women as part of a deployment, in my opinion, and in Juba, it was definitely a benefit to have women to be involved in every aspect of being on the ground because it allowed us to actually have better engagement with all areas of the local population. There are certainly some, um, some areas such as women and children who may respond and in my opinion did in some of the areas around South Sudan respond better to women than they did to men. And I'm not saying it's right. It's just a fact. Ghana and Bangladesh actually both had engagement teams specifically designed to engage with every single community that they went into. And that's certainly one of the takeaways of the LC initiative. And it's talked to throughout the LC initiative, not just to have women, but to have engagement teams that are a complement of both men and women. In fact, Bangladesh had a female-only engagement team, and they were very, very successful in the South Sudan. We were finding that the, the women and children responded more openly to the engagement team when they came into the community. And um, that, for me, was an excellent force multiplier. Having access to women feeling comfortable and children feeling comfortable in the environment to tell you exactly what was happening on the ground allowed us to have better situational awareness. This better situational awareness benefited not only us from a force protection perspective, perspective, but it also benefited the community because we were better able to grasp the needs of the community, whether it be economical, food, shelter, or force protection for the community, what was actually happening. And the women are essential in the communities as much as I think they're essential everywhere. They certainly understand and appreciate the situation and they know what the needs of the community are. And they're not afraid to tell you what the needs are when they're given the platform to do so. And I think those are two of the ways I think that having women on deployment I don't know that it's a unique experience, but it certainly, in my opinion, has allowed us to see differently. The last thing I probably comment on is having a woman allows us to set an example. And what I mean by that is I deployed to UNMISS as the force provo marshal. So I was the first female to ever hold that position for this mission. The police commissioner was also a female while I was there. She was the first female to ever be the police commissioner. And having women and other visible minorities, in my opinion, in key positions sets an example for other nations who may still be in the process of developing diversity within their own force and organization. But more importantly to me, it allows women in these organizations to see that it's possible to attain your goals and aspirations. It's possible to hold key positions and take on leadership roles within an organization such as the UN. And I think by continuing to permit men and women, but women too, to be part of any deployment, any organization, any company, you're going to see that it's not strength in numbers, it's strength in diversity, it's strength in uh, engagement and 
and its strength and experience. That's very well put. And on the topic of diversity, there is incredible multinational diversity as part of UN contingents. What about being Canadian? Does that provide any value added? What are Canadians' unique contributions as part of these UN missions? So I can only speak from my perspective and how I, I see things. I've been on a number of, to a number of places on a number of deployments, and I believe that Canada, me and Canada, because I, I believe I represent Canada and hopefully I represent them very well. The minute they see a Canadian flag, I've always, I've always seen a response of a smile. I've never been in a situation whereby someone is adverse to actually seeing Canada be there. And I think we bring as a country just a complete understanding of friendship and respect of humanity. I, re I really do believe that. Whether I was in Afghanistan and they were chanting Canada every time they saw the flag, or I drove out the gate and stopped at the market to buy avocado in Juba, and they saw the flag on my shoulder and were like, ah, Canada, Canada. The flag is immediately recognizable, more so than I could ever have imagined. And it's that instant smile that comes when they say Canada that I think is Canada's biggest contribution. Uh, so you mentioned your, your other deployment, uh, including in Afghanistan. And so I... I'd like to have a, a quick conversation about the different types of operational settings, depending on who's the lead organization. So you spent a year in a UN context. You also worked in a NATO setting in Afghanistan. You've been deployed to Haiti as well. Can I ask you to quickly compare working in a NATO setting versus a UN setting? So at the tactical level, I think that both are are pretty much the same. And at the tactical level, all the people are working to achieve their part of the mission, which, which then of course contributes to the whole mission intent. Some of the differences, and I think I became more aware after finishing my deployment this time in South Sudan, some of the differences, for example, maybe the exit strategy. In my perspective, I believe the UN goes in with a mindset that we're going to be there for generations and it's going to take generations to actually affect change within the country. Whereas I think NATO seems to have a little more shorter term. I always look at it and go, when I went to Afghanistan, for me, it was like a five-year mission, not for me specifically, but the understanding I had was how do we achieve what we can within a five to 10-year term? Whereas I think the UN goes in with a, how long do we have to be here to achieve what we need? And we're looking at generations, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, depends. The other, I think, significant difference from my perspective between the two is the amount of partners who are brought in to the table from the onset of the mission. Both have different partners, and I believe both kind of take what I would consider what we probably use and coin as a term in Canada as the whole of government approach. I just find, I in my perception, the UN does that more quickly, and it certainly comes with a lot more to bear immediately within the mission. So, you know, you have all of your UNDP and your FAO and your UNICEF and all of your different organizations with the UN who kind of are already embedded within the mission at the onset when it comes Comes. Whereas with NATO, we seem to go in with your force and a few of those force multipliers that you need right away. And then you build your mission depending on the, the situation and, and how it's developing on the ground. I think those are the two biggest differences. But for me, between NATO and the UN, I, I think both organizations are there for the right reasons. And that's ensuring that a country has a secure environment to be able to develop itself and to become a contributing country across the world. And in Afghanistan, just to come back to, to that, I know you engaged in training and capacity building efforts, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that because training and capacity building seems to be part more and more of what the CAF is asked to do internationally. And so can you tell us a bit more about your work with the Afghan National Police and how that was rolled out? Yeah, so in 2010, I deployed to Afghanistan 
for a year. And I was deployed to be a part of, of the training mission for the Afghan National Police. And myself and uh, a team of approximately 40 people were posted to the regional training center for the Afghan National Police in Kandahar. That training center was quickly became responsible for all of the training for the Afghan National Police in the province of Kandahar. The team that I deployed with were half military police and half combat arms, mostly infantry soldiers. And the reason we needed both, and I do believe we needed both, is because in Afghanistan, you can be an excellent cop, but if you can't survive, you can't police. So we quickly realized, as did people before us, that in order for a police officer to survive in Afghanistan, they needed to know how to counter an attack. They needed to know how to set up a defensive position at their police stations, and they needed to know how to police. So the combination of the two, putting a team of us together, really allowed us to work with our Afghan counterparts to ensure they were getting the foundations of both the ability to survive and the ability to actually to be professional police within that context. I think Canadian Armed Forces are well suited to a mission such as that. And I say that because I'll come back to the mutual respect. We have worked hard to be seen as, I don't know if friend is the right word, but an ally to all. And we certainly appreciate what anyone can bring to a table. And in a training environment, those are two of the things that you need to be able to move forward. The Afghan National Police didn't train to a Canadian police standard. They didn't train to a military police standard. That was, I guess, a bias I had to get over when I first got there. Because the first thing I did was look at a training program and say, well, this is not sufficient. This is not going to create, this is not going to create police officers that could attest to what needs to be done in Canada. And then I had to quickly realize that I wasn't in Canada. I was in Afghanistan. And it's the Afghan government working in conjunction with us who said, the standards that they need for their police right now. Now, the single police force developed overnight. We all continue to grow and enhance our professionalism. The important thing was to have the fundamental skills of what was required to be a police officer. And that's simply community engagement, the ability to interact with people, to instill confidence in your ability to carry out your mission. And Canadians walking in have the ability to work in concert with others. For me, I saw that we were not better Sure, we have an excellent police force all over Canada. We're well-trained police officers, but no one ever takes the stand that we're better than anybody else. We went in with an open mind that we may learn from you and you may learn from us. And together, we're going to have what we can make is the best possible police force available to you on the ground right now to meet the needs that you have at this time. And those are some of the things that are instilled within the Canadian forces. It's that whole camaraderie, work together to achieve a common goal, treat everyone with mutual respect, remember that you're a human being, that we all started somewhere we have a long way to go and it's teamwork that will get you there. And in a training mission, like any mission, but specifically in a training mission, coming in with that mindset sets the stage for success. And I'd like to believe that our team uh, saw a lot of success. I was, a, again, not to say I was a female, I'm always a female. I was, <laughs> I was uh, the commander of a team of both men and women. There was myself and one other female, the rest were men. And that was, that just happened to be what it was on the ground at the time. It became interesting because we could see success because we saw success in them sitting in a room and talking to us equally, asking questions about how we would do things. In the beginning, they didn't want to, our Afghan counterparts didn't want to show up to work. And we thought it's because they were lazy. It wasn't because they were lazy. It was because they had never been empowered to actually teach themselves. They had never been told that you should be teaching. They had never been told we're here to support you, not to do the job for you. And when we went in and we said, we want to work with you, not against you, 
not instead of you. Let's two of us go in and teach a class. Let's learn from each other how to do things. We could see that at the end of the mission, we were simply a person in the room assisting as a, as a teaching assistant, not the teacher. They took command of their training centers. They, helped, they had pride in, their, in, in what they accomplished. They had pride when the students graduated and seeing someone smile when they're receiving their certificate or seeing instructors show up to work every day and saying, really, I really love this and I, I like my job and I want my country to have a good police force, all a measure of success. And it came simply from allowing them to train to establish what it was they needed to do. There's a lot of passion in your voice when you speak about your experience in Afghanistan. Was this your favorite tour? I like to think I have great experiences on all my tours. I think from a perspective of Afghanistan, I think the, the reason I would consider probably what, probably in some aspects, my favorite tour. I was a major at the time. Afghanistan was, wasn't coming to an end, but it, it was certainly in 2010, we, we could see that we were starting to, we would be starting to withdraw potentially soon. And it was the first time we'd established training. And so getting to be a commander of the first training team to go in on a permanent basis with the establishment and to be quite frank as a female, getting to be an advisor to the Brigadier General, who is the um, commander of the Afghan um, Training Center, and to see him appreciate what anyone can bring to a team, to see him refer to me as simply his advisor, not his female advisor. I was simply an advisor. To me, it was a highlight of my career. It allowed me to see that everyone can see you as a person, regardless of your gender. If you just work hard and work together toward your common goal and show them that you deserve to be there because you, you're competent and capable. And I think th that was such a, a great experience for me. And you also mentioned the importance of respect and camaraderie. So I, I really have to ask, what has been going through your mind since the sexual misconduct allegations against fans came out, which opened the door for other high profile disclosures and reporting? So it's definitely a trying time for the Canadian Armed Forces, and I think for some aspects of our government at large. And I, you know, I hear a lot of talk about culture change and the Canadian Armed Forces and our leadership. Culture change doesn't happen overnight. I've been a member of the Canadian Armed Forces for 21 years. We've come a long way and we've done a lot. We've even done a lot since 2015. You will see culture change. I believe culture change happens without us ever realizing it happens. It's something that we simply see. We see change as our attitudes change, as our acceptance of things change. We have a lot of great leaders in the Canadian Armed Forces. I have spent 21 years and I've enjoyed every minute. And I'm not trying to diminish the things that other people have gone through over the course of their career, nor say that it is okay because it is not. But I would like to say that hasn't been my experience. My experience hasn't always been positive, but it certainly hasn't always been negative. And the positive has greatly outweighed the negative. And I have complete faith that the leaders in our organization are doing the right thing. We're all human. We all make mistakes. It's a fact of life. I'm a big believer in it. It's not that we don't make mistakes. It's how we respond to them and the lessons that we learn and then impart into our organization that makes the biggest difference. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons over the last eight plus years. I think we're starting to embed a lot of those lessons into how it is we function today. We are going to continue to make mistakes as people, as individuals, as leaders. But I am a firm believer that we are absolutely on the right track. And I know that we have the people who want to see the Canadian Armed Forces succeed and be an employer of choice. As a female in the organization, as a leader in the organization, I have faith that we will continue on the path we have already started. And we know it's not acceptable to have certain behaviors in our organization. And we are working to change the acceptance of those behaviors and to ensure people understand that you must act according to our ethics and values to wear a uniform and the Canadian flag on your shoulder. 
So for the emerging leaders out there who might be considering a career in the CAF, your advice would be don't hesitate. Absolutely. A career in the Canadian Forces isn't for everyone. I'm a big believer in that. But if it's something that you think you want to do, don't stop yourself from doing it. Whether you're a man or you're a woman, don't hesitate to think that we are not an organization that is willing to change. We are not an organization that doesn't have good ethics and values because I believe that we do. Sometimes we have individuals that fall. Sometimes we have individuals that make mistakes. But as an organization, we are striving to achieve excellence. We are striving to ensure we don't repeat the faults of the past, and we're striving to ensure we have an excellent environment for the future. I think the Canadian Forces is an excellent career path and a career choice for anyone in Canada who may think it's good for them. Give it a try. You may be surprised. And what comes next for you, Colonel Hammerhand? I know you have some French lessons <laughs> to finish, but uh, beyond that? I do. So for the first time, I think in my career, I can tell you I have a little bit of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what's going to come next. I know from now until December, I'm going to be completely engaged in uh, learning my second language of French. In December, uh, hopefully I will have achieved my profile and uh, after Christmas, I will be posted to a new position. Not really sure what that position will be. I am expecting it will likely be somewhere in Ottawa. Outside of that, who knows? But that in itself, it, it allows a little bit of an excitement. I believe it's you that makes the position and the people around you that makes the position. So uh, I have no doubt that I'll be given a position uh, that is good for me and good for the organization. And I look forward to see exactly what it is when the time comes. Well, let me thank you very much for spending time with me on Battle Rhythm and sharing some highlights from your latest tour with our listeners. Et bonne chance avec les cours de français. Ah, merci. <laughs> bonne journée. <laughs> last few R&Rs have been a little short on reading material, so I've got two big books for you. Ben Barry, Blood, Metal, and Dust, and Theo Farrell, Winnable. Ben Barry looks at the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's looking at it from a British perspective, more or less, about what went right, what went wrong. But he also talks about the American perspective and what, what happened, why things didn't go well. And Theo Farrell is very much focused on the British experience. And given what's happened in Afghanistan this summer, and given the state of the world, I, and it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up. I wanted to catch up on some of what people have been doing in, in terms of looking back and figuring out what we can learn. And they're both incredibly readable books, create a lot of stories and details I wasn't aware of, despite the fact that I've been studying these issues for years. And it's really striking to see what happened with the British in Helmand when the Canadians were next door in Kandahar, the similarities of the experiences. I don't think Canadians really have a good appreciation for how difficult the British had it and how many mistakes they made. So a lot of the mistakes we made were made by the British and the war itself. Well, Theo Farrell calls this a book unwinnable for a reason. That was the war doomed from the outset. I think these two books suggest so. And the Iraq war was doomed from the outset as well. And not uplifting books, but they're interesting and they tell really important stories about what people went through and the lessons we can learn. So those are my two books. And for something completely different, it's the second season for Never Have I Ever. And the joy of Never Have I Ever, it's a rom-com about a teenage girl, an Indian American girl based on the life of Mindy Kaling, uh, who used to be in the office and used to write for the office. And it's delightful. It's just so funny. And the best part of it, well, not, not the only best part, but one of the best parts of it is that the girl's thoughts are narrated by John McEnroe, the tennis player, the retired tennis player. And that is absolutely perfect. 
They've also played around in having some other characters be narrated by other famous people. So Andy Samberg last season narrated one of the boys. And this season, another person narrates uh, a different boy. And the narration is just hilarious. So we're binging through that on Netflix. So I recommend that. I also saw Black Widow and now in the theaters for the first time. First movie I've seen in, in the theaters in a year and a half. And it was a fun Marvel movie. Uh, I think it was better than I expected. So that's something else to, to use as a distraction as we start to emerge from this, even as we face this, this new wave. So be careful, get your shots, be considerate of others, and good luck and enjoy the rest of the summer. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.